tech giant strikes a new deal and shares of Weber Grill go up in smoke. Motley Fool Money starts now. I'm Chris Hill. Joining me today, Motley Fool Senior Analyst Jason Moser. Happy Monday. Happy Monday, indeed. Let's start with Microsoft, shall we? Because Microsoft struck a deal with the London Stock Exchange. The deal calls for the exchange to spend nearly $3 billion over the next decade on Microsoft products. Sounds like most of that is going to be spent on Azure cloud services. And the London Stock Exchange gets a greater use of data and the chance to appeal to a broader customer base in exchange for nearly $3 billion. So, kind of seems like a win-win here. Yeah, I mean, it definitely feels like it's a it's a good thing for both companies. Um, I mean, when you when you look at it in the grand scheme of things, right? I think it's it's uh, an agreement over ten years to spend a minimum of two point eight billion dollars on cloud related products with Microsoft. So if you you know you you stretch that out, I mean, you're looking at what essentially basically two hundred eighty million dollars per year over the next ten years. And and for at, at the minimum, and for a company like Microsoft, a business that brought in two hundred and three billion dollars over the last twelve months, obviously not terribly meaningful from that perspective, right? I mean, just from a simple numbers perspective, it's a drop in the bucket. Uh, you know, when you consider uh, LSE, I mean, that's that's they brought in around nine point one billion dollars in, in trailing twelve month revenue, so a little bit different there. For them to spend 280 to 300 million dollars a year, uh, that's a bit more of a commitment for that business. But, but generally speaking, yeah, it does feel like um, it, it's going to work out for both businesses. And you know, interesting for Microsoft. I mean, I, everybody, I think that you know, the 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 thinking here is that this is good for Microsoft as as it pertains to Azure. But I think it also gives them an opportunity to continue leveraging the other. The other properties and specialties that they that they have, right? I mean, namely Teams. I mean, this is going to be something that is going to allow them to to roll out uh, Microsoft Teams and really embed that into LSE's uh, workflow uh, and, and continue building capabilities from that platform. And, and you know, Microsoft Teams in this age of Slack and Zoom and working remotely, I mean, Teams is certainly proven to be a worthy competitor. I mean, I think a lot of the conversation that has has over the last few years, the conversation is certainly centered around things like Slack and Zoom. Teams is, is a very good platform, a very good product. I mean, having used it myself, I liked it a lot. So, I mean, I feel like this is a good way for them to continue growing that as well with LSE's 23,000 plus employees. Um, so, yeah, I, I think all things considered, it's a sensible thing for the London Stock Exchange and absolutely a nice win for Microsoft. Probably can't hurt to make a couple friends in the neighborhood of, uh, I don't know, Europe's biggest <laughs> stock market. I'm, I'm just thinking from a regulatory standpoint. I'm not saying that's why Microsoft <laughs> did this deal. I'm just saying it probably is a tiny thing that goes in the plus column. A potential perk, I think maybe we could call it. Yeah, I mean, it, it definitely. I don't think it can hurt the cause. I mean, you're right. Microsoft is clearly squarely on on regulators' radars right now for the Activision Blizzard acquisition. Um, obviously, the FTC filing a, a suit in order to try to stop that deal from happening, or at least bring some concessions about. So it remains to be seen how that all shakes out. But but yeah, it it does. 
it does probably give Microsoft a few more friends in a market that would apply to something like this. Uh, I, I agree with you. This, I can't believe this would be why they did something like this, but um, I'm sure they probably look at it and think, hey, you know, it, it, what's that old saying, Chris? It's not what you know, it's who you know. Well, it feels like maybe they're getting to know a few more people here that could, uh, that could serve them well uh, down the road. And, and, and that really, I think, um, Shines a light on the nature of this relationship being being a fairly long one, right? I mean, ten years is uh, is is a nice start, so to speak. And I and, and I don't think that's anything that we should expect to just conclude after ten years, right? I mean, the nice thing about this is they've got ten years to really establish this relationship and and and, and establish a deep relationship. And you get very sticky, right? The switching costs grow as you embed yourself with these cloud providers. And when you look at the overall cloud market, I mean, cloud infrastructure service revenue. Over the last 12 months, totaled 217 billion dollars. Now, if you look at the way the cloud share breaks down today, you've got Amazon with AWS at 34 percent. Microsoft is starting to close in there a little bit at 21 percent, with Google in third at 11 percent. And you remember Amazon's share used to be higher, right? I mean, they, they used to it used to, they used to hold the lion's share, and and now I mean you're you're just seeing more competition, and, and that makes a lot of sense. Um, which and, and so I think when you look at at the length of this relationship, the duration of this relationship, it, it gives you a little bit more of an idea as to the potential that could develop even beyond 10 years, which I think should be exciting for Microsoft shareholders. Yeah, it's hard to imagine this market, when you lay out those numbers, it's hard to imagine this market getting anything but bigger over the next 10, 20, 30 years. It feels like it. You know, we 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 talk about this from time to time on on the team here um, in in regard to just sort of looking at the the perspective of utilities, right? I mean, utilities people tend to think of water companies, gas companies, power companies, and, and the like. Um, I, I I would put I would certainly put cloud providers as in that category as sort of the modern day utility. Now, it's a little bit of a different model and a different way that the finances work there, and, and ultimately these cloud Cloud services are part of companies that do other things, but I think it's very fair to look at cloud infrastructure as absolutely a, a form of utility that's only becoming more and more relevant as time goes on. As they say on Pardon the Interruption, happy trails to the public life for Weber Grill. BDT Capital Partners is taking Weber private in a deal worth $3.7 billion. Weber went public in August of 2021. The opening day share price closed at just over $18 a share, and the buyout price is just over $8 a share. Kind of seems like the best possible outcome. Not a great outcome, but the best possible outcome. I think I think you're right. I think you're right. I mean, you got to give it. You got to give it. Uh, you got to give BDT Capital some credit here. I mean, helping take the company public uh, at the time, they were the controlling shareholder. I mean, they were the controlling shareholder in partnership with the Stephen family and management since an investment back to, two, to, to December 2010. So, uh, BDT very familiar with this business, and uh, ultimately, hey, listen, they. Took it public for one price, and they're getting to buy it back for a, a much lower price. Um, I, it, I, I'm a little bit torn as to whether. I mean, I, I guess this is a this is probably this is a good business to own at the right price, right? I mean, I think that grilling and in 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 and that sort of lifestyle that's not something that's going away. There's plenty of opportunity there. Um, it, 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 I don't know that it's an opportunity that grows to the moon, but I think about this 
every time I fire up my Traeger, uh, Chris, as, as I did yesterday when I, when I was smoking some ribs. You know, I threw those ribs on there at 12 o'clock, took them off at 7. Chris, they were delicious. I'm not going to lie to you. Right? I had them going over some cherry all day with a little extra pecan in the smoke tube. They were sublime. Now, as I was doing this, I'm thinking to myself how much I enjoy not only the finished product, but the process. It's just enjoyable. It's fun. But it also reminded me that, man, I don't know that I want to be an investor in one of these companies. And the main reason is because the product's so darn good. I mean, like, I hope this is the last Traeger I ever have to buy. It's the first one, right? My family got it for me as a gift last Christmas. Um, it is very well made. And if you take care of it, I think it, it can last a really, really long time. You and I were talking earlier today. Uh, we both have gone through the experience. You have grills for 15, 16, 17 years. Uh, you know, that's, that's not prompting a bunch of repeat purchases, is it? It's not. And it's a mistake <laughs> that a lot of investors, myself included, have made. Sure. Thinking of the, the uh, great Peter Lynch and his principles around investing, and one of them being look at the products and services that you're already using in your life, and the mistake that a lot of people make is just stopping right there. It's just stopping yeah. with, well, well, I use this thing and I love this thing, so therefore I'm going to buy shares of it. It's like, no, that's that's where the process of investing begins. And then you start to dig in. Once you get the idea, then you start to dig in. Well, how is this business? And are they making money? And in the case of Weber, have they made a product that is so good and so durable <laughs> that people don't need to buy another one for 20 years? And if that's the case, and it is the case in Weber Grill, then yeah, not a great investment. I think you put it perfectly there, man. And that is where the process begins. Once you see that, you say, okay, that's the starting point. Now let me understand how this business actually works. And I, you know, there is. I look at Traeger, for example. I'm partial to Traeger, obviously, because I have a Traeger. But I mean, I think all of these companies they they do things very well. Whether it's Big Green Egg, Traeger, Weber, they make wonderful products. And I think what we're starting to see these businesses do is try to figure out how to monetize beyond that great product, right? And so then it boils down to ancillary services, consumables, accessories, things like that. So, whether it's meal kits, um, I mean, coming up with new sorts of accessories, and the, the, the nerdier you get about grilling and smoking, the more you love all of those accessories. Um, but then, really, I think the consumable side of it, and in, in, in this, this really comes into play with something like a Traeger, just because it's fueled by those wood pellets, and that is something that you have to keep on buying. It's it's not a gas grill, right? It's fueled by those wood pellets, and you have to buy those pellets in order to use the grill. Um, and so, if if these companies can find new ways to sort of grow those consumable offerings and ancillary offerings, they can become more attractive uh, because there is that installed base, right? There is kind of a switching cost that comes into it. I mean, if you buy that Weber, you're probably going to be using that Weber for the next fifteen to twenty years if you take good care of it. Um, and, and so, figure out ways to monetize that relationship. And I would imagine that BDT Capital, given their history with Weber, they probably have some ideas. And I'm sure they'll probably execute on those ideas. It's neat to see innovation in this space. I sent you that tweet earlier about Traeger partnering up with Whistlepig and that new uh, bourbon barrel uh, bourbon barrel wood pellets. I mean, I'm, I'm going to have to give that a try, Chris. I feel like I'd be letting my family down if I didn't otherwise. But but yeah, seeing that kind of innovation is is pretty neat, and I think that's going to be the key to these businesses succeeding. Is, is taking that awesome product, that awesome installed base, sort of that, that 
razor, right? And, and just figuring out new compelling sorts of blades to go with. Jason Moser, thanks for being here. Thank you. Amid all the talk this year about rising inflation, the cost of used vehicles has been steadily declining. Ricky Mulvey caught up with Eddie Alterman, the chief brand officer of Hearst Autos, to talk about the used car market, surprising storylines of 2022, and one way that General Motors is beating Ferrari. So you think the Chevrolet Z06 Corvette can compete with the Lamborghinis and the Ferraris. Detroit is back. Is this because you're a Detroit guy or did Lambos and Ferraris get worse? No, despite my Pistons hat, I think last time we talked, I was wearing a Tigers hat. I can't quite muster the uh, the uh, enthusiasm to get a Lions hat. No, I, I think Detroit has created something with a new Corvette that is fully competitive with Lamborghinis and Ferraris. You know, Corvettes were always sort of the budget supercar. You know, they would they would deliver a sort of a, sometimes equivalent performance of a Ferrari or Lamborghini or McLaren for a third of the price. Um, but they were, weren't maybe taken as seriously as some of those European supercars because it wasn't mid-engined. And so the big step change that happened with this, the eighth generation of the Corvette, is that the engine moved from the front of the car, where the weight is on the, the mass is on the front wheels, to behind the passengers, like a true European style supercar. And this has been, Corvette has been threatening to do this for a very, very long time. They finally did it with the eighth generation. And so it truly is a bona fide mid-engine supercar, like a McLaren, like a Ferrari, like a Lamborghini, but it's just a lot cheaper. But it has a ton of character. It drives great. The ride is not harsh. The interior is beautiful. And I think in many, many ways, I'd rather have it than a Ferrari or a Lamborghini. I think it's a it's a better everyday driver and uh, it's more comfortable to be in. That like the transmission is like silky smooth and that the seats are great and you know, you don't have to worry about the the uh European repair prices. <laughs> and uh, you know, there's a funny story about Lamborghini guys versus Ferrari guys, and I don't know where where this all fits in, but the Ferrari person will have had his mind on a car for years and years and years and work toward it and work toward it and finally buy it and keep it for the rest of his life. That's his car. Whereas a Lamborghini person, it is said, will buy a Lamborghini as an impulse purchase and in 18 months, they'll be dead or in jail or broke. Uh, er earlier point, which is that the Ford dealerships are now picking up EVs. At a conference in New York, I think this was like in March or something, Jim Farley said, quote, we've got to go to a non-negotiated price. We've got to go to 100% online. There's no inventory. It goes directly to the consumer and 100% remote pickup and delivery, end quote. He's br he's bringing the dealerships back or was he just mad that they were selling cars above MSRP? Uh, I don't know if it was either one of those. I think that the dealers really do a lot for America, right? And the franchise laws protect those dealers. But I, I think ultimately, you know, local politicians get elected by dealers and all their cash. And I don't think dealers are going away anytime soon. So I think, you know, Farley's provocative and he's trying to push the industry. And, you know, he's he is really, really smart, and really dynamic. And I think he's a provocateur in, in the best possible way. 
And I think what he was doing is saying, look, you know, Tesla's doing this. They're selling direct. They're getting all the data on their dealers. And the data is what we want. I'm sorry, the data on all their, their, their customers. Whereas, you know, in, in the current system, once the, the OEM sells to a dealer, that car is counted as sold. And now it's a dealer's problem. And the, the customer relationship exists with, with the dealer and the customer, not with the, the car maker and the customer. Well, I, I think part of it, I'm sure there was stock pressure or investor pressure, which was in, in 2020 during the pandemic, let's, let's just say, all of these cars were selling above MSRP and it wasn't reflected in necessarily the revenue for, for the, the, the investors in, in, in your Fords. So, hey, what's, what's going on? Why, a, why aren't we benefiting that? And you just have angry consumers or angry car buyers, I should say, who are just upset about feeling gouged. You're seeing the same thing in the, the used car market with the what was it the, the Honda sports sedans that are going for like ten thousand dollars more a year used versus the new MSRP. Yeah, yeah, the, the Civic Type R, the 2021 version, which was the last generation, is going for fifty grand, whereas the new car is forty three. But interesting point about you know what you said about Ford, uh, whereas the investors were not getting you know. The returns that the dealers were. And it was a, a simple supply demand equation. The car makers, because of the, the silicon chip shortage, were not able to produce um, at the volumes they needed. It created tremendous pressure at the dealerships. Toyota was, you know, usually had like a 30 to 60 day supply, depending on the model. They would have like a 36 hour supply. You know, things would come on the truck already sold. So dealers are making money hand over fist, but the car makers were the ones that that were incredibly challenged by this and, and working hard to pump things out. And, and so, you know, it really strengthened the, the dealer's position and, and gave them a, a, a cash hoard that hopefully they're not spending on. I mean, bet between us, how much of that was like advertising? Oh, we have to over, we have to start selling above M uh, the the manufacturer's suggested retail price because because we just don't have any inventory. Well, some there was some gouging, but there was just a lot of natural competition there, you know. And and look, we're in a cycle where people have to get new cars because like thirty to forty percent of cars are leased, uh, so the the churn is sort of built into the system. So you'd have to either buy it out your lease, which a lot of people did because it was advantageous for them to buy the original, you know, residual value where the car on the open market is worth more. But yeah, I mean, people need new cars. And, and the interesting thing that you see is even in this supply constrained environment, the volumes are still around 13 million. And everybody's saying that like the natural new car volume is around 17 million, which is a very, very high number. So. I think the demand is always uh, is always very very strong for new cars, especially because we're going through this real kind of once in a, a century prime mover technology change, where we're going to from gas to EV, and people are excited in a way that they haven't been about cars in a very very long time. You know, for a long time the car business was like, why can't we be more like the iPod? Why can't we be more like Apple? Now the cow business is like, why can't we be more like Tesla? Yeah, well, I, there's going to be a huge headwind, I think, with for especially for new and used cars, which a lot of these companies make the, make their money on financing. They don't make money on selling the car. 
and you got interest rates that are i think like the the what is it the the baseline interest rates around 4% this year so that means that your your car loan is going to be significantly more expensive move into the move into the, the price of cars and especially used cars or well i guess new cars are $48,000 on average right now where do you think we are in the used car market because for a new car that that's not that's not affordable for most people you can't get a new car not too far behind and the off lease cars are uh, like the three-year-old cars are really leading to some very, very elevated prices because people want to keep up with the technology. People want the latest safety stuff. It's a huge emotional driver for people. So they want the newest cars and those are, you know, in the best condition. Generally, they have the most uh, feature content and, and people want those. So yeah, average use price is around 35, 38, which is insanely high. But that is not to say that, you know, you look a little bit deeper into a car gurus or automation, you can go, you know, you can get something for 15, 20 grand. You know, uh, a buddy of mine just bought a uh, uh, 15 year old. There are deals out there. I mean, for your money, what are you getting for, let's say, let's just say 20 to $30,000 if you were buying a car right now? Yeah, I would get a, a Lexus GX 460. That's a lot of feature content for not a lot of money. You can go off-roading in it. Or get a Miata, you know, or get just Miata. Your suggestion is it's either it's either that or Miata. <laughs> Those are the only two things. Okay. Yeah. I was looking at I was looking at I'm looking at used electric cars, and basically, if if you want something under 30k, your option is the Nissan Leaf. That's it. Yeah, exactly. What are, What are my hopes of buying a, a decent electric car under 30 grand in the next next five years? Do you think? Very high. I think that the the, the costs are moving down, and you look at at. Uh, what General Motors is doing uh, with their BEV pricing. It's very, very aggressive. And um, that's why Bolt is selling so well. I think Equinox EV is going to sell great. Same with Blazer. I think that they've they've sort of mastered the, um, the, the pricing there. And you look at what Hyundai and, uh, and Kia are doing, and they're really aggressive on price. But, you know, the Hyundai Ionic 5, which is... It's actually a very, very big vehicle. It doesn't look that big in pictures, but it's really big. It's sort of the wheel, same wheelbase as the Palisade three-row SUV. That's that's sort of mid forties to fifty. So it's it's above that thirty thousand dollar threshold. I want to want to keep talking trends a little bit because this year I feel like has been for for I, I, you can sound smart about investing e stuff where it's full of surprises for investors. There's been a lot of surprises for car stuff too. You know, like on. I'll put it this way. On my bingo card, I didn't have Apple, Ford, and Volkswagen like delaying their self-driving plans and putting those on the back burner. And Nikola has delivered trucks. Yeah. Any any big surprise storylines stand out to you for, for this year? Well, yeah, the Nikola one is interesting because the head of that company got busted for fraud and the stock collapsed. And part of that was the bond yield. But Nikola seems to be back a little bit. But to me... The most interesting story on the product end is that if you were to ask me five years, 10 years ago, where the greatest cars were coming from, I would have said Germany, maybe a little Japan in there. Now I feel like it's Korea and Detroit with the most interesting product. I think what Genesis is doing is phenomenal. You know, their, their uh, SUVs are incredible. Their electrics have a ton of appeal and the, the, just the fidelity of the design is so high. Um, I also feel like I never thought that I would drive, growing up in Detroit, I never, in the 80s, I never thought I'd drive a Cadillac that was better than a BMW or a Mercedes. 
And I'm driving one right now. I'm driving Cadillac CT4V Blackwing that I'd rather drive than a BMW M3, to tell you the truth. Bells are ringing and a jingling. Folks are mixing and a mingling. If you want to hear more from Eddie Alterman, season two of his podcast, Car Show, is out now. As always, people on the program may have interest in the stocks they talk about, and The Motley Fool may have formal recommendations for or against, so don't buy or sell stocks based solely on what you hear. I'm Chris Hill. Thanks for listening. We'll see you tomorrow. I love snowmen and turtle doves in twos. Holly, ivy, mistletoe can take away my blues. Chris Kringle and his reindeer friends, they endlessly amuse. But the best part of the holidays is sugar and booze. I love mittens and skating on the ice. But I glide right through December mixing naughty with that nice. So pour a nip into that nog and let it light your fuse. Because the best part of the holidays is sugar and booze. Wake up, baby, don't you hit the snooze. Just forget the headlines and the news. Pop a cork, put on your dancing shoes. Give me honey and hooch and I'll give you a smooch. Let's give those devils their dues. I like cider, but keep it spiked with rum. What good's a little drummer boy with no pom-pom-pom? Come New Year's Day.